Greetings, everyone. Hello. Uh, this evening, we're going to be looking at the epistle to the Colossians, and we're also going to be looking at Philemon. I had to put Philemon in somewhere, and Colossians seems like the most logical place to put it. So we'll begin now with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we do thank you that you have given us such a thorough record in the scriptures, thorough instructions about yourself, the knowledge that we need to have of you, of your great plan of salvation, instructions about how to conduct our lives, both through teaching and through example. We thank you for this. We ask that you would help us to learn from these two books this evening as we study them diligently in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So first we're going to be looking at Colossians, Jesus Christ, our life. Once again, we'll look at the flight characteristics. First of all, the facts. The Apostle Paul is identified as the author of Colossians. The word apostle means to send. When Paul used the term apostle to refer to himself in Colossians 1.1, he was saying that he was sent as a messenger, in his case, on behalf of Jesus. What a wonderful thought, considering that Paul was once a persecutor of Christians before his Damascus Road experience around AD 34. Colossians is one of Paul's four prison letters. He wrote these letters while imprisoned in Rome between AD 60 and 62. So remember the, the four prison epistles. We looked at one of them last time, Ephesians. We're looking at two more of them tonight, Colossians and Philemon. And then we'll look at another one uh, next time we meet, which will actually be in the new year in, in January, the second uh, Wednesday in January. We'll be looking at Philippians. The landmarks, the young church at Colossae had quickly become the target of heretical attacks. The so-called Colossian heresy uh, included belief in ceremonialism, asceticism, in other words, severe self-discipline, angel worship, the depreciation of Christ, lessening or cheapening his identity as fully God and fully man, secret knowledge, exclusive knowledge, and of course, uh, religious elites always like to employ that, don't they? Special secret knowledge that you can only have access to through them. And reliance on human wisdom and tradition, human philosophy. It's likely that the Colossian heresy was a mix of an extreme form of Jewish legalism and an early stage of Gnosticism. As an old saying puts it, a lie can travel halfway around the world while truth is still putting on its shoes. Paul's main purpose in this letter was to refute the Colossian heresy. To accomplish this goal, he exalted Christ as the very image of God, the creator, the pre-existent sustainer of all things, the head of the church. The first to be resurrected, the fullness of deity in bodily form, and the reconciler. Thus he concluded 
Christ in, in and of himself is completely adequate, and we have been given the fullness of salvation through him. The Colossian heresy, on the other hand, was altogether inadequate. As a mere human philosophy, it was empty, hollow, and deceptive, lacking in the ability to empower the believer for a new life in Christ. The itinerary, an outline of the book, first part of the book deals with personal issues, the wisdom of Christ, in the first 14 verses there, chapter 1. The second part deals with doctrinal information, the preeminence of Christ, 115 through 223. Then practical instruction, the application of Christ, chapter 3, verse 1 through chapter 4, verse 6. Then the relational interaction, the hidden saints of Christ, 4, 7 through 18. Gospel. The book of Colossians contains the Bible's strongest written defense of Christ's preeminence, his position of unmatched superiority, and his role as the most important person ever to exist. Both the Gnostics and the Judaizers denied this aspect of who Jesus is, and the blend of both parties' philosophies in Colossae confused the church there. Paul began his defense of Christ's preeminence by stating that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Paul understood that his audience was aware of two coexisting realities, the visible world that we live in and can detect with our five senses and the invisible world inhabited by unseen spiritual beings. That is uh, God and his angels and Satan and his fallen angels. Where does Jesus fit in this hierarchy of things we can and can't see? right at the top. He is the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, both the seen and the unseen. As the firstborn, which is the Greek of Protakis, uh, meaning the first in importance or priority, Jesus made everything that exists and holds it all together, sustaining the material universe in perfect balance. What's the ultimate reason for all of this? So that in all things, Jesus may have the preeminence. If Jesus is the pre-existing one, the creator and sustainer of all that we can, see, can and cannot see, the incarnation and image of God himself and the founder of the church, it makes sense that he should occupy the preeminent or most important place in people's lives. God the Father assigned him that preeminent position, and so should we. That's the full message of the gospel. History. The ancient city of Colossae was located in modern day Turkey along the Lycus River near the cities of Laodicea and Hierapolis. Laodicea, whose church Jesus called out for its lukewarm spirituality in Revelation 3, was the financial center of the area while Hierapolis was known for its spas and supposedly healing waters. In Paul's time, Colossae had already fallen in prestige and prominence in the Roman Empire. Earlier in its history, especially around the 5th century BC, 
It had been a thriving city known for its trade and clothing business. The church at Colossae was founded during Paul's three-year stay in Ephesus during his third missionary journey, AD 52-57. Paul's friend Epaphras may have helped with getting the church started. So probably it wasn't Paul himself, but his friend Epaphras who, who founded the church. In the years after Christ's death and resurrection, a belief system that became known as Gnosticism began to take shape and work its way into religious circles. The church at Colossae, not excluded. It was likely a blend of Gnosticism and the Judaizing influence that had taken root in the Colossian church. Simply put, the Gnostics believed that God is good, but everything in the material world is evil. Because of that, Jesus could not have had a physical body. He must have had what Gnostics called an emanation or aeon, some part of God's essence that emanated out from him. So we've encountered that idea before that recall from uh, the epistles of John. This idea that the spiritual world is, is good and the, and the material world is bad so that Jesus couldn't possibly have been uh, a human being, holy man. Of course, that is not what the scriptures teach. Because God is perfect, so this is what the, the Gnostics thought, he would have nothing to do with an evil material creation. So from time past, they posited various emanations simply came forth from him and accomplished various deeds. One of these emanations created the world, for example, and another one came to earth as Jesus. Gnostics also held that in order to become enlightened and saved, one must attain to a secret higher knowledge, Gnosis, above that of scripture. That's Gnosticism in a nutshell. And while it's certainly one weird nut, it had a lot of traction in Paul's day. It needed to be refuted. Here's the region of Colossae, and down on the lower right, you can see where it's located in the, on the west side of, southwest side of uh, Asia Minor, Turkey. This is the region of Colossae, and the, the um, red pin that you see in the upper uh, illustration were there in the on the right side. That's where Colossae was located. This is a closer up view of it. And you can see that Colossae is located near Laodicea and also Hierapolis. This is a, a map of the cities in that region. And once again, I want, want to show you how it fits in with the, the churches that we read about in Revelation. So over on the left side of the map, kind of in the middle there, you see Ephesus. As you go north from Ephesus, you get to Smyrna. And then when you go east, you get to uh, Sardis. Further east, you get to Philadelphia. And you start curving down. You go through Hierapolis and then Laodicea, which is the last of the churches that are mentioned in Revelation. 
Colossae was located close to Laodicea. Those churches of uh, Revelation were on a mail route. So a route from Ephesus over to Laodicea. So the, the, the travel tips, the implications and applications of the book. First of all, know who Jesus is. One of Satan's chief tactics is to hijack what God has done or said and twist it to his own advantage. In the midst of Gnosticism and Judaizers that, that plagued Colossae, Satan's false teachers took sound biblical terms like wisdom, knowledge, and spiritual understanding and refined them so that they pulled people away from what the scriptures really taught. When you talk to non-believers, especially ones who claim to have a connection to Christianity, know how to define your terms. You'll find that the Jesus whom Paul described in Colossians, for example, is quite different than the Jesus of the, the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses. In your conversations with others, always start with a clear definition of who Jesus is and what he has done. Keep first things first. As believers, we all want to grow. We all want more than, than we've already experienced. We all want a deeper relationship with God. But growth in these areas does not come from any system that preaches that in order to be saved, you must have Jesus plus something else. Jesus plus baptism, or Jesus plus mystical experience, or Jesus plus combating climate change, or Jesus plus striving for social justice. Jesus is all sufficient. You can't add to Christ. Who he is and what he did at the cross are complete. Putting those things at the same, these things that I've mentioned, putting those things at the same level of, of importance as Jesus makes you ineffective in your faith and unproductive as his agent in the world. Working for your own salvation is a sickness, and Jesus is the only one who can cure you of that seemingly inexhaustible addiction. You must trust that Christ alone is enough. Keep your eyes on Jesus every day. If he is first in importance in the universe, he must be first in your everyday life. If Jesus doesn't have first place in your marriage, your family, your work, your relationships, your hobbies, or your entertainment, can you truly say he is the Lord of your life? When you hammer a nail, what do you look at? The nail, not the hammer or your thumb, because you hit what you're aiming at for. You hit your target. In the same way, when you make Jesus your focus, you'll hit your target. Some uh, contrasting and comparisons here. Uh, contrasting um, the book of Colossians with Ephesians. In Ephesians, the emphasis was on the body, the church. In Colossians, the emphasis is on the head of the church, the head of the universe, actually. In Ephesians, there's a stress about unity. In Colossians, there's an emphasis about heresy. In Ephesians, we read about Christ over the church. 
And in Colossians, we read about Christ over the cosmos, the entire universe. Ephesians is more ironic. In other words, it's more, there's more of an emphasis on peace and harmony. And Colossians is far more polemical. It's arguing against, arguing for a certain position and against the opposite position. Because of course, Colossians is dealing with heresy. So we would expect it to take a more polemical tone. Contrasting the book of Colossians with Philippians, which we'll be looking at next time. Um, Philippians talks about uh, um, it talks about Christ emptying himself when he became a man. Whereas Colossians talks about pleroma, in other words, the fullness. So there's that, that contrast. Philippians talks, uh, emphasizes uh, Christian living, whereas Colossians, it's on Christian knowing, contrasting the, the knowing that we find in scripture with the knowing that the Gnostics were advocating. Christ's headship. Well, in 1 Corinthians, we, we learn that Christ is the head of the individual. In Ephesians, we learn that Christ is the head of the church. And in Colossians, we learn that Christ is the head of the cosmos, the universe. To whom was Colossians written? Paul's writing to the church at Colossae. Ephesus had founded the church, not Paul. The church is made up mostly of Gentiles who are influenced by a vain philosophy composed of an incipient form of Gnosticism, legalism, mysticism, and asceticism. In brief, the heresy was a form of Judeo-philosophical and mystical asceticism, a forerunner of second century Gnosticism. Gnosticism didn't come in its full-blown form until the second century. Purposes of Colossians, the various purposes for which the letter was written can be affirmed from the text. Paul desired to show the Colossians their completeness in Christ. He wanted to lead believers into spiritual maturity. That was very important as they were facing this Colossian heresy. His design was to counter the Gnostic-like legalistic mystical heresy in the church. He desired to teach about our new life in Christ. He wanted to inform them about his state of affairs, what was happening in Paul's life. The theme of Colossians, completion in Christ. The emphasis is on the eminence and sufficiency of Christ as the believer's completeness in Christ. There isn't something additional that we need in order to obtain salvation. The key verse of Colossians, that we may present every man perfect, meaning complete in Christ Jesus. It's not teaching that we're going to achieve perfection, sinlessness in, in this physical life. But we, that 
every man may be perfect, may be complete in Christ Jesus. One of the issues that we that comes up in the book of Colossians is this idea of Christ being the firstborn. What does that mean exactly? Colossians 1.18. If Christ is only the firstborn in creation, how can he be God? John declared Christ to be eternal and equal with God. But here Paul seems to say that Christ was only a creature, the first one born or created in the universe. Clearly, Paul declares Christ to be God in this very letter by saying he created all things and has the fullness of the Godhead. The reference to firstborn does not mean he is the firstborn in creation, but the firstborn over creation, since he is before all things. Firstborn in this context does not mean the first one to be born, but the heir of all, the creator and owner of all things. It refers to his priority over creation, not his temporality in it. As creator of all things, he could not have been a created thing. Another issue that comes up is, will all be saved? Colossians 1.20, does this verse teach that all will be saved? In other words, universalism. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Colossians, for it was the Father's good pleasure through him, in other words, through Christ, to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. If Paul says that all things are reconciled to Christ by his death and resurrection, this seems to imply that all people are saved. But other scriptures that, that declare that many will be lost. Matthew, Revelation, for example. First of all, Paul is not speaking about universal salvation here, but simply the universal sovereignty of Jesus Christ. In other words, all authority has been given to Jesus Christ in heaven and on earth. That's what uh, Jesus told his disciples after his resurrection. By virtue of his death and resurrection, Christ, as the last Adam, is Lord over all that was lost by the first Adam. Here's a chart comparing some important passages in Ephesians and Colossians with the passage in Philippians. It will help us to understand this, this idea that might confuse some about all being saved. In Ephesians and Colossians, the, the passages there talk about all are in Christ. All in heaven and earth. It's talking about all who are in salvation, all who are in Christ. Contrast that with the passage in Philippians, where all bow before Christ. All in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So what it's talking about here is that all who are saved and unsaved will one day bow before Christ, will one day acknowledge his sovereignty. So the passage in Philippians is talking about all who are in subjection, which means everyone, saved and unsaved. 
So what you notice about the two, the, the passages in Ephesians and Colossians versus the passage in Philippians, is that the ones in Ephesians and the Colossians don't include those who are under the earth. So that we'll see the importance of that expression under the earth, those who are under the earth. When Paul, when Paul speaks in Colossians of being in Christ, being saved, he does not include those under the earth. Those are the lost. That expression, those who are under the earth, refers to the, to the lost, to the unsaved. However, all persons, saved and unsaved, will one day bow before Christ and acknowledge his universal lordship. But nowhere do the scriptures teach that all people will be saved. Jesus will say to many, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's in Matthew 25. John spoke of the devil, the beast, and the false prophet, and all whose names are not written in the book of life being cast into the lake of fire forever. We read of that in Revelation 20. Paul speaks of punishment of the wicked as everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord in 2 Thessalonians. It is evident from all these passages that not everyone will be saved. Another uh, passage in the book of Colossians that has sometimes caused some confusion has to do with Christ's suffering. It talks about uh, the sufferings of Christ lacking. Colossians 1.24. How can Christ's death on the cross be sufficient for salvation when Paul speaks of what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ? The Bible declares that Jesus' death on the cross was both sufficient and final for our salvation. Yet Paul states that he is filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. But if the cross is all sufficient, how can anything be lacking in Christ's suffering for us? Christ's death on the cross is sufficient for our salvation. The Bible makes this emphatically clear. Anticipating the cross, Jesus said to his father, I have finished the work which you have given me to do. On the cross, he cried out, it is finished. The book of Hebrews declares unequivocally that by one offering on the cross, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. And this he did by himself with no help from anyone else. Nevertheless, there is a sense in which Christ still suffers after his death. Jesus said to Paul on the road to Damascus, he said, why are you persecuting me? In this sense, we too can suffer for him since it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. But in no sense is our, offering, is our suffering for Christ a means of atoning for sin. Only Jesus suffered for sin. We suffer because of sin, ours and others, but never for sin. Each of us must bear the guilt of our own sin and accept the fact that Christ suffered for our sin. When we suffer for Christ, we are undergoing pain as part of the spiritual body, the church, 
but only what Christ suffered in his physical body on the cross is efficacious for our sins. Our suffering then is, is in service, not for salvation. So now let's take a look, a look at the book of Philemon. And every time I think of the book of Philemon, I think of that um, joke about Franz Bibfeld and his five volume commentary on Philemon. Franz Bibfeld is a mythical theologian. And the joke is that he wrote a five volume commentary on Philemon. Philemon presents Jesus Christ, our Lord and master, because it deals with the issues uh, of Onesimus and slavery. Jesus Christ is our Lord and master. We are slaves to him. The facts in Philemon, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, is identified as the author of the book of Philemon. This is the last of Paul's prison letters. Uh, I had to combine it with something, so I combined it with Colossians. We'll look at the one remaining prison letter next time, Philippians. Those letters, those epistles that he wrote while incarcerated in Rome. Sometimes Philemon is called the polite epistle. Philemon is one of the few writings of the New Testament whose scriptural canonicity has not been challenged. Philemon was written at the same time as Paul's other prison letters during his first imprisonment in Rome between AD 60 and 62. Well, in Mark's, Philemon is a personal letter. It differs from all of Paul's epistles in that it is neither doctrinal or intended for general church instruction. Paul focused on applying the principles of brotherly love and forgiveness to personal life. He wrote to Philemon, an active Christian in the church at Colossae. That's why I chose to speak about this in conjunction with Colossians. And one of his converts on behalf of Onesimus, Philemon's runaway slave who had come to Christ after fleeing to Rome and had been instructed by Paul during Paul's first Roman imprisonment. This is the only private letter of Paul's that has been preserved and the only letter of its type in the New Testament besides 3 John. In keeping with uh, his ongoing emphasis that believers ought to be responsible citizens, Paul felt that Onesimus should return to his master in fulfillment of his Christian duty. We don't know exactly all the details about how Onesimus had wronged Philemon, only that Paul urged Philemon, only urged Philemon to forgive and accept Onesimus as a new brother in Christ. So Onesimus had become a Christian. Philemon should receive him and accept him as such. An outline of this short book. In verses 1 through 9, we read about ethics in Christ. In verses 10 through 13, we read about equality in Christ. 
And then in verses 14 through 21, we read, read about exoneration in Christ. Being cleared of, of, of a crime that one has committed. Exoneration. The Gospel of Paul's letter to the to Philemon shows the love and mercy of Jesus Christ in action. Paul expressed his love for Philemon and Onesimus, both owner and slave. So he showed his love for both of them. But he recognized that a bill still had to be paid on Onesimus' behalf. His offer to pay the debts Onesimus owed is a beautiful picture of what Jesus has done for us. On the cross, Jesus took our debt on himself and paid what we owed God, the cost of sin's wages, which is death. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We were slaves of sin, and he paid to set us free. History, one of the biggest historical themes of Philemon is slavery. Slaves in the Roman Empire were typically treated as a commodity that is worth only what they could be sold for. In some places, up to one third of the population was enslaved. Slavery wasn't based on race. It, was, it included prisoners of war and foreigners, as well as, as well as those who owed debts they could not pay. They became slaves as well. Some families were forced to sell their children into slavery in order to survive. But slaves could find freedom, and many did. Sometimes owners would set a slave free, and sometimes a slave would formally purchase freedom through labor. A formerly, formerly freed male slave could become a Roman citizen with full rights. So there was incentive to work hard and be obedient to one's master. While some Roman slaves performed menial tasks, many were well-educated in philosophy, science, and medicine. Slaves were used in most uh, every aspect of life except public office. Slaves were not allowed to hold public office. When the gospel came to town and a church was born, slaves and owners mingled together in the new Christian community to worship and learn God's work. So Christianity brought a new, whole new dynamic between slaves and, and their masters. The travel tips, the implications and applications. First of all, your ministry starts at home. When Paul referred to the church in Philemon's house, he may have meant Philemon's ministry to those who lived in his home, that is, his family. The word, uh, the Greek word ekklesia, that we normally translate as church, actually has a, a broader range of meaning than we usually think. There's even one instance in the book of Acts where an unruly pagan mob is referred to as an ekklesia. <laughs> So an ecclesia, which we normally think of as, a, as an organized religious body, it, it can mean uh, much more than that. 
so it, it is possible that um, when Paul referred to the church in Philemon's house, that he may have been referring to his household. The home is a place where husbands are to minister to their wives, husbands and wives to their children, and older siblings to younger siblings. By setting a godly example, by cultivating, shepherding, and guiding one another closer to Jesus. Freedom in Christ surpasses earthly labels. Unless Jesus is your master, you are enslaved to something that will never fully satisfy and will certainly never give you the freedom to be who God intended you to be. But when you belong to Jesus, you become free, free to, like Paul, the apostle, to re relate to any fellow Christian as your brother or sister, regardless of their status, wealth, gender, ethnicity, or anything else that formerly would have divided you from them. We often uh, see that in our relationships with Christians, don't we? If we weren't Christians and they weren't Christians, we would probably never meet some of the people who become dear friends in the body of Christ. God loves to restore broken people. Paul echoed this truth when he wrote to restore the relationship between Onesimus and Philemon. Think of all the people and circumstances that led to your salvation. How God orchestrated so many details to bring you into a right relationship with him. If he was in control of all of that, you can trust that he'll also work everything in your life. The good, the bad, and the ugly, together for your good. Purposes of Philemon. The reasons for writing Philemon are evident in the text. Paul wished to entreat Philemon to reinstate Onesimus. He wanted to suggest his possible release from prison. That is Paul's release from prison. He sought to persuade Philemon to request the services of Onesimus in the gospel. He was, Onesimus was a fellow Christian, so Philemon should employ him in the service of the gospel. He, Paul, wanted to state the Christian view on slavery, and we'll get into that more later. Theme of Philemon, benefaction in Christ, there is the receiving of benefits in Christ. And there are certainly many of those, aren't there? Many benefits of being in Christ. Not only do we receive, do we receive benefits from being in Christ, but Christ enables us to share benefits with others. A key verse, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. The, the many values of Philemon, even though it's a short book, this book is significant in many ways. Personally, it shows the character of God and names 10 other people. So it is, a, we, we gain some glimpses into the 
personal life and personal thinking of, of Paul. Even though it's a short book, it, it talks about many people. Ethically, it reveals his balanced sensitivity to rights. Paul's sensitivity to rights. In other words, he, he loved both Onesimus and Philemon and their various roles. Providentially, it manifests the providential hand of God behind events. We can see how even when Onesimus fled his master, Philemon, he came to Rome and he crossed paths with Paul. So we can see how God works providentially to direct our movements. And eventually Onesimus became a Christian through the work of Paul. Evangelistically, it encourages winning the lost to Christ. Just think of uh, how it would be so different if, if Onesimus had not come to Christ through Paul. Socially, it shows the relation of Christianity to slavery. Spiritually, it is a beautiful picture of the gospel. Intercession, substitution, restoration, and elevation. All of these are found in the brief book of Philemon. So let's take a, a closer look at the institution of slavery and the, and the relationship of Christianity to slavery. Uh, in Philemon 16, does Paul approve of the institution of slavery? The Apostle Paul seems to favor the institution of human slavery by sending a runaway slave, Onesimus, back to his owner. Paul makes no outright condemnation of slavery, but, but slavery is unethical, a violation of the principles of human freedom and dignity. Slavery is unethical and unbiblical. Neither Paul's actions nor his writings approve of this debasing form of treatment. In fact, it was the application of biblical principles that ultimately led to the overthrow of slavery. Here, Paul neither commends nor condones it. Rather, he undermines it and condemns it implicitly. Several important factors should be noted in this connection. From the very beginning, God declared that all humans bear the image of God. We read it up here back in the very first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis. Paul reaffirmed this, declaring, we are the offspring of God. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. In spite of the fact that slavery was countenanced in the Semitic cultures of the ancient world, the law demanded that slaves eventually be set free. Likewise, servants had to be treated with respect. So the slavery that we read about in the law in the Old Testament was very different from the other institutions of slavery that we learn about, especially the 
slavery in the early years of the United States. God reminded Israel constantly that they had been slaves in Egypt and their emancipation became the model for the liberation of all slaves. In the New Testament, Paul declared that in Christianity, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. All social classes are broken down in Christ. We are all equal before God. The New Testament explicitly forbids the evil system of this world that created the bodies and souls of men. We read about that in the, the book of Revelation. Slave trade is so repugnant to God that he pronounces his final judgment on the evil system that perpetuated it. When Paul urges servants, be obedient to those who are your masters. He is not thereby approving of the institution of slavery, but simply alluding to the de facto situation in his day. His purpose is to instruct servants or slaves to be good employees, just as believers today should be. But he was not thereby commending slavery. Slaves were commanded to obey their masters, but nowhere does the Bible command anyone to have slaves, nor does it even encourage us to do so. A closer look at Philemon reveals that Paul did not perpetuate slavery, but actually undermined it. For he urged Philemon, Onesimus' owner, to treat him as a beloved brother. So by emphasizing the inherent equality of all human beings, both by creation and redemption, the Bible laid down the very moral principles that were used to overthrow slavery and help restore the dignity and freedom of all persons of whatever color or ethnic group. It was futile in the monarchy to try to overthrow politically the institution of slavery. Half the Roman Empire were slaves. It was better to undermine it spiritually, which eventually happened by applying Christian principles. So you weren't going to uh, vote into office somebody in the Roman Empire that's going to do away with slavery. It wasn't possible to obtain it through political action, which it would be the case in, the, in a democracy or a republic. But in the, in the empire, that was not possible. So the way to undermine slavery was to spiritual means changing hearts and minds and that concludes our discussion this evening about Colossians the epistle to the Colossians and the epistle to Philemon <laughs>